Welcome to the Cosmic Connection. This is your place to explore the beauty and order of the cosmos. And your connection to it all. My name is Amanda Poole-Walsh, and I'm the founder of Astrology Hub. And I'm Rick Merlin-Levine, your Cosmic Navigator. Now let's dive in. Let's do it. Everybody and welcome. It's so great to be here with all of you and especially to be here with Rick Merlin Levine. Today we're going to be covering music, math, and metaphysics. What they have in common, how they're related. Rick, I've often wondered why so many of the best astrologers are also very musically inclined, meaning maybe they play an instrument or they're just very musically oriented and seem to have a gift in that area. So I think we'll probably uncover some of the reasons for that here today. And uh, do you just want to go ahead and take it away? Well, I'd just like to jump in and say what what they, what they music, math, and metaphysics all have in common is the letter M. Very true. All right, that, well, we'll, we'll that catch was you my... on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, so let's start. I mean, music, math, and metaphysics, they seem unrelated. And and then obviously what this has to do with astrology. Well, let me let me start off with the letter M because I was only being half facetious. Hmm. Um linguistically, our language is vibration. We in effect we hum we make our vocal cords vibrate. And as we do, we change the shape of our mouth and our tongue and we alter how those sounds come out. But basically language is vibration. And the ancient languages, especially of Hebrew and Sanskrit, um, were considered to be sacred languages because they were connected uh, much closer to the natural hum than the modern English or whatever languages we speak. But there's very something very special about the letter M and in fact the letter N and in fact the letter S and even the sound SH. And that is unlike the sounds T and D, T, D, the other sounds including M have no beginning and no ending. I mean, think about it. The word moon is so different than, you know, than the, than the word steady. I mean, can you, there's, there's a whole different sense to it. And words that have no beginning and no ending, there are sounds that do, are often associated with the cycle of vibration and the moon, even the word moon, mom, you know, home, these, they're just owl. They, um, and in fact, when you compare the um, Asian languages uh, as a whole to the Western languages, the Indo-European um, romantic languages, um, we find that in the um, Eastern traditions, there's no or very little sound of st and d. It's more like a, um, it, it, there's, it, it, it's more just flowing like that. And the idea of, on the surface, that music, math, and metaphysics have anything in common, and I said, well, they're all M words. The fact is that they all touch into that area that is beyond... Um, beyond what is physical, even math, which we consider to be a basic language of, of how things work, uh, you know, advanced mathematicians ex live in this total mental, imaginative, theoretical framework. So bringing this back round a bit, I got, you know, kind of uh, um, intrigued by the alliteration of mm, mm, and mm, music, math, and metaphysics. Um, in some ways, what music and math, we'll get to the metaphysics part in just a moment. What music and math have in common is that music is at its absolute fundamental level, mathematical. 
period. It is mathematical. And it was Pythagoras, um, the guy who gave us the A squared plus B squared equals C squared, the law of the right triangle. Um, the guy who gave us that was actually the, um, excuse me, the leader of a secret initiate order um, that was um, called the Order of the Golden Apple. And um, and they were very um, high mentally, spiritually. Um, they were all vegetarians. I mean, it was a very interesting um, uh, initiation process. And it was a secret tradition. And, um, and the, the thing about Pyth- Pythagoras is that he also taught um, that there were no such thing as solid things in the universe, that everything, everything, which is an interesting um, oxymoron unto itself, everything is vibration, meaning that things are not things, they're vibrations. And he taught that the universe consists of vibrations, and he also taught that no vibration could exist alone that vibrations arose in sympathetic harmony. Sympathetic harmony sounds a little like we're already into the realm of music. Well, Pythagoras, um, amongst other things, and amongst the law of the right triangle, the A squared plus B squared equals C squared, Pythagoras also gave us something else that a lot of people don't realize. He gave us the scale that we use. He's the guy that figured out that if you take 12 equal steps in frequency from one note to the next, that at the 13th step, you get to what we call an octave. And an octave is a note that's um, one, um, uh, it's, it sounds the same, but it's higher. I was looking around, I thought maybe I had a flute laying on my desk, which I often do to demonstrate this. But but I'll try to do it by by voice, and my my voice um, is a voice that is made for silent pictures when it comes to singing. But you have a note like hmm, and then you have a note that's an octave higher hmm, hmm, and that note that do re mi fa sol la ti do hmm, hmm, those notes that are an octave apart are in fact the frequency of the low note doubled. And it was Pythagoras who figured this out, that there was a spatial relationship between what we hear and the length of the string that's vibrating. It's why when we're playing a a guitar or any violin, bass, when, when we shorten the string by playing with our fingers, well, as the string length changes, the note gets higher as the string length shortens. And if the string is shortened in half, let's say you have a string that's, you know, that's one meter long, um, and you take and you cut it in half so that you have two strings that are a half meter long, the half meter long strings will make an octave to the meter long string. Well, (laughs) this um, coupled with the fact that Pythagoras also claimed that the planets themselves generated music. In fact, the term, the music of the spheres, comes from Pythagoras. Remember, this is the guy that said everything is vibration, that solid things are, are a distraction, are a, um, uh, there, it's what we're seeing is not necessarily what we're getting. We're seeing solid things you know i as i said and i hit my desk and shook my camera um but these solid things are a result of of somehow of vibrations <clears throat> interesting interestingly um in the hindu system uh it's considered that the world that we see is actually not the true nature of reality that we are shielded from the true nature of reality by what the Hindus call maya. It's like a veil 
um, um, like almost like a curtain that prevents us from seeing what's really there. And what's really there is just vibrating particles, albeit very high frequency that vibrate so fast that we don't even realize the entire universe is pulsing on and off several hundred trillion times every second. The entire planet Earth is like a, like a, like a um, firefly with a pulsing on, off, on, off, but just simply millions, actually trillions of times every second. So we don't notice that. We just see things persisting as solid form. So this idea of the music of the spheres um, is intriguing because normally we think of music in the range of what we can hear. Uh, in other words, um, I'm going to show my geekiness right now. Um, when a concert, um, when, 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 when a um, concert uh, symphony orchestra uh, tunes just before the concert and everyone's kind of, you hear all the different instruments kind of sounding and tuning, they're all tuning to one note. And that one note is the note that's A. Uh, and for those of you who don't know music at all, the notes in music go A, B, C, D, E, F, G with sharps and flats in there, and then back to A again. And, uh, and a symphony orchestra tunes to the note of A below middle C. Middle C is the middle key on, on a 88-key piano. And that note, is 440 cycles every second. Our ear is picking up on a beat that is simply pounding against our ear at 440 times every second. And if that note um, is doubled and made an octave higher, it's beating 880 times every second uh, on our ear. And our ear can hear beats from down around 50, 60, 70 times a second, um, uh, all the way up to 40, 50,000 times a second. Now, let's go to the planets, because the planets are beating out frequencies. When we look at the sky and we see the moon, we're seeing this big rock in space. And we say, ah, the moon is in the sign of Libra. Um, or the moon is nearly full and in the sign of Aquarius or Leo or whatever sign it might be in. But we're looking at the moon as, as, a, as a hunk, as a, as a thing, as a thing. However, the moon is also a wave form. The moon, just like a note we can hear, beats at, like A, 440 cycles a second. The moon beats at 13 cycles a year. Way too slow for us to hear it with our ears but it's not too slow for us to dance to it for our, for our uh, organs in our bodies um, to be entrained to it. And entrainment is a very important word when we step into the realm of um, math and music, because it turns out that cycles that are close to each other in frequency kind of naturally entrain to one another. There's a story of um, the, um, uh, the Dutch clockmaker, um, um, Christopher Huygens. Um, I guess this is probably back in the 1600s or early 1600s. And he was making clocks with pendulums. And he'd noticed that if he had like a dozen clocks mounted on a wall and he started all their pendulums and wound them all up and made sure their pendulums were moving um, before he left his, his workshop, at night and he'd look up and he'd see all the pendulums moving at different kind of uh, rhythms and, or different synchronizations. And he'd come back in the morning and they'd all be going together at the, or, or if anyone on the East coast, on the West coast, we don't have fireflies, crazy thing. But, um, but in most of the rest of the United States, 
in the evening time in the summer, it's amazing to watch um, a firefly appear in a field and it'll go blink and then another one will appear. Blink, blink, blink. And as it gets darker, by the time it's dark, the whole field is going blink, blink. They're all entrained. We humans are like that. Um, when you put a bunch of women together in a, a communal living situation, their menstrual cycles tend to synchronize. Nature conserves energy by entraining to larger rhythms. And Johannes Kepler picked up on this idea, used it, and wrote about it. And incidentally, many people know Kepler as the guy um, who created the laws of planetary, invented, discovered might be the best word, discovered the laws of planetary uh, motion to calculate where the planets are at any moment in time. Um, and, um, and, and many people uh, know that Kepler was also a, uh, an astrologer. In fact, he considered that to be his calling from God and his astronomical work on the mathematics of how the planets moved was really a, I don't want to say a side project. He was obsessed by it, but it was the obsession was so they could get accurate location of where the planets were. So they could create, so he could create accurate and real, real charts. Um, incidentally, um, Kepler's daytime job was Mathematicus. That was the title that he held, Mathematicus. And the Mathematicus was a, an appointment by Emperor Rudolf, the um, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire that was no longer part of, of Rome. Um, and as Mathematicus, Kepler's job was to keep time for the, make calendars to keep time for the whole empire. So Kepler, many people don't realize, also contributed quite, um, quite significantly um, to the understanding of music and music theory. And here again, like Pythagoras, we have this crossover between the music of the spheres and the music of the ears. So, um, so in, in starting this conversation, um, I just want to point out that, that music is mathematical that there is a mathematical understanding to when you create a, a frequency, um, we hear the note differently at a higher frequency, it's a higher pitched note, at a lower frequency, it's a lower pitched note. But we often, we can hear three instruments that are playing the exact same note, like um, like a trombone playing, playing um, a, a note, and a cello in that same range playing that same note, um, and an alto sax um, playing that exact same note. They're all playing the exact same note, the same frequency, but we can tell that there's something different about them. If someone played to you those three instruments playing the same note, you could very easily go, oh, that's the sax, that's the cello, and, you know, and, and, and that's the um, trombone. There's no problem in telling the difference, but the frequency is the same. What's different? Well, now we're going to jump back to Pythagoras, who said no vibration arises alone. They always are, vibrations always arise in sympathy with other vibrations, sympathy like like um, resonance. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but um, anyone who's probably ever you know, um, experimented with mind-altering practices of any short sort, has probably yelled into a, a piano ah! and hear, hear all the strings vibrate or been holding a guitar and loud music is playing or someone else, and you can feel the strings of the guitar vibrating too. This is called resonance. It's used in all electronic and, and digital circuits where resonance is created to create... Uh, um, some sort of uh, effect. So we have this idea that when we hear a note, we're hearing, let's go back to that 440 cycles a second. But as that note is played on the various instruments, it also creates what, what are called overtones um, or 
harmonics. And a harmonic is simply a mathematical extrapolation from whatever that bass note is. Let's just go back to a moment. I'm not going to delve in here much further on this topic, but let's go back to that A below middle C at 440 cycles a second. The second harmonic would be 880 cycles a second or one octave up. But there are all kinds of other harmonics. There's the there's the um, um, two-thirds vibration. There's the one and a third. There's all these mathematical numbers that create a sound like a brass instrument, which sounds harsh to our ears because the harmonics or overtones are kind of disrupting or in some ways conflicting with the fundamental or bass note. Whereas on a cello, you have incredible resonance. Um, and that resonance is created by overtones that are more like notes that go together well. Um, um, a perfect fifth is a good example. The sound that's in Gregorian chants and that you know, it's do, re, mi, fa, sol, do, sol, mm -hmm. that connection is an open and beautiful and easy connection. And then you can take two notes and make it sound either happy by a major or a minor um, uh, relationship with one another. And here's the deal. It turns out that Kepler, being a fan of Pythagoras's work, um, realized that the music of the spheres was not just some idea. It was not just a, a metaphor. I know this guy that wrote this book called I Never Metaphor, I Didn't Like It. It's a great, great title for a book. All right. Um, it, it was, but this is not a metaphor. This isn't something to describe something that Pythagoras and Kepler, when they talked about the music of the spheres, they actually understood that the vibration of the planets, we see them as orbits, as cycles, but every cycle is the completion of one vibration. In other words, a vibration like a pendulum goes back and forth, but if you add a third dimension, it's going around. And so the planets, as they go around, are creating rhythms. Um, they're creating pulses. They're creating hums. They're just octaves and octaves and octaves too low for us to hear with our naked ear. Um, and, and so we don't perceive them as musical, we see them and we perceive them as these big objects in space. And incidentally, although I don't want to go down this rabbit hole right now, and I've talked about this at, at other times, um, many other times, this is actually now put into perspective by quantum physics that says that we live in a universe that is actually alive and vibrating and that particles are basically a wave that is being measured in a moment. In other words, light, for example, travels like a wave. It propagates like a wave. And yet when we go to measure it, we measure it and we find that there's a photon, a packet, a particle of light, a thing, a thing. And so um, this, this whole idea of, of modern physics realizing that things can be a particle and a wave at the same time really corresponds to astrology. And we as astrologers are coming out of a couple thousand year tradition of looking at planets as particles. And yet now we're beginning to understand, and this really began, I think, in earnest in the mid 20th century, um, uh, with the work of uh, the humanistic astrologers, Dane Rudyard, and uh, people like John Addy, who started delving into the mathematics of harmonics, because Kepler was the first astrologer who said that the zodiac signs don't, don't matter as much as we think they do. What matters is the relationship that a planet is making with another planet. And in, and in, uh, digging into that, he um, realized that when you switched gears and looked at those mathematical relationships, that the magic of the number 12 <clears throat> of 12 signs in the Zodiac 
is that with 12, we can get a triangle and a square and a six-pointed star, which are all sacred geometrical figures. And even going back to Plato, the triangle and square and the and and the um, um, star of David, um, two intersecting triangles, each have their own inherent meaning. And so, what Kepler realized, though, is that astrology artificially eliminates the sacred geometry of a five-pointed star, and so now it's the mathematics of harmonics that enabled Kepler to step out of the old sign-based aspects developed by Ptolemy, <coughs> excuse me, and step into the world, which we now call harmonics. So this idea <clears throat> of, of music and math is absolutely an easy thing to see and to make the connection to between because, because music and mathematics are totally intertwined. Uh, music is mathematical. Now, going to metaphysics, I'm just going to touch on this here, and then, we're, then we can come back into a conversation. But the fact is that there's some sacred geometries, there's some music, which actually makes us want to move. It has real reggae. <laughs> you know, it's like, how can you listen to reggae without moving your hips? Um, there's just something about the beat and the structure. And then there's on the other end of the spectrum, there's stuff like John Cage or where, where, or Brian Eno, where they're just sounds and they sound wonderful and beautiful, but they're not connected to this world. Now, in a way, the 12 fold Zodiac creates aspects that are physically manifestable if that's such a word they are they are they they manifest physically and this is where astrology has focused for thousands of years an astrologer <clears throat> will look at when you got sick when you got married when you were born these are particular moments that are physical um when you got married when 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 you know uh they they look at characteristics physical they look at things as to how you interact with people in the outer world when something happens that your life explodes these are all manifested ac external events however there's a whole sequence or series of events that we really as moderners just begin began to develop language um, at the um, at the Neptune Pluto conjunction in the late in the 1890s where we had the rise of theosophy and mediumship and Sigmund Freud wrote the interpretation of dreams this was not about physical stuff in some ways dreams are metaphysical they don't manifest in the physical world and so as we step into the realm of harmonic aspects that are not based upon the um, uh, uh, on the Ptolemaic or the Hellenistic aspects um, based upon the 12 signs of the Zodiac, we step out of the Zodiac and we open up an entire universe that was previously invisible or metaphysical. Those are my opening words. <laughs> Your opening words. Wow. That was in an entire universe in and of itself, Rick. So, okay. Hey, by the way, thanks. Thanks for the mug. You're welcome. I'm glad that you love that mug. I love this mug. It's this so great. From Amanda a few years ago. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So if I'm understanding correctly, when we're looking at harmonic aspects, we are looking at more of the metaphysical part of our chart, the beyond the tangible aspects of ourselves. When we are focusing on planets and signs and the Ptolemaic aspects, this is the more physical part of our reality. So these are like the tangible physical part. And it's it when you were talking about harmonics, it's like the wave. And when you're talking about the planets and signs as particles that is more the physical ma manifestation in our life. i would love to say yes okay. and in theory yes but not all harmonics are metaphysical mm. in other words as we go up the harmonic scale 
<clears throat> there are some harmonics that actually resonate with the physical. So that, for example, we have a conjunction, which is one complete cycle, 360 degrees. And then we have the second harmonic, which is an opposition. You take the number at the bottom of the fraction, a half a cycle, that's a second harmonic. And then a square is one quarter of a circle. That's a fourth harmonic. Mm. So all aspects are harmonics, but not all harmonics are Ptolemaic or Hellenistic or physical aspects. Okay. So so what you were saying was true, but harmonics includes all the physical and then has an, an infinite universe of metaphysical. Okay. So Tracy says, I've recently learned my chart is a ninth harmonic chart. So my question is, Okay, let's let's say we all find out what what our chart is from a harmonic. First of all, let me interrupt you in saying uh, say that that what 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 she is actually trying to say, I believe, is uh-huh. that her chart resonates in the ninth harmonic, but that doesn't mean it's a ninth harmonic chart because she might have two planets that are square. That's a fourth harmonic. A chart in itself can't be one harmonic. Ah. A chart in itself can be stronger in certain harmonics. And I should say with great respect, this really now touches on the work of David Cochran and vibrational astrology. As I think you know, Amanda, David and I were only born a few weeks apart. He has my Aries stellium in Taurus. And so he's taken a lot. I'm not saying he's taken what I've done and done this. We've we've both explored a very similar area. But as the Taurus, he's taken it into a concrete form, where as an Aries, I'm pushing the newness and the and the conceptual form. But vibrate. But anyone who's interested in seeing how what I'm talking about actually works in reality, one might look at one of the hundreds of a YouTube um, uh, offerings that David Cochran has on vibrational astrology. Even the word vibrational astrology to me is the same thing as saying harmonics, because we're talking about the planets as vibration, not as solid particles. Okay. So there's no, there's no way to really take the sum of all the harmonics in your chart and then make it and put it all together. The Moody Blues um, did an album many, many moons ago in called In Search of the Lost Chord. I mean, it's a there there theoretically there is a, a hum, there is a there is a fingerprint, there is a something. And when you listen to let's say a, a musical performer, um, if you know a mus- musical performer you can hear the first few notes of a new song without knowing what the song is. And you know, it's that performer because they have a certain, um, they have a certain fingerprint, they have a certain sound. And so that is their, their resonance. But if you look at the chart, they might have a whole bunch of fourth harmonic stuff. Uh, And in fact, some of the most um, um, versatile polymaths in history have charts that resonate in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth harmonics or ninth. Har- the ninth harmonic is a, is a frequency that was is used um, extensively in Vedic or in um, um, uh, in Hindu in 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 uh, in Jyotish in the Eastern tradition. They use the ninth harmonic as a, a chart for calculation. And I don't want to get into talking about specific harmonics here, but right. you can't have a chart that is a ninth harmonic chart. Mm. You can do a ninth harmonic. You can create a ninth harmonic chart for anyone. Mm. Some people, those charts will hum and resonate and other people, you create a fifth harmonic chart and there's techniques to do this. You could create a fifth harmonic chart. And for some people that chart screams and for someone else, that chart has, um, has 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 nothing. Um, and so, by the way, someone just commented something. I don't know if, if Joe or someone can take it down, but it has nothing to do. It's a long comment on, on <laughs> herbs. Yeah. Okay. So there's 
basically this is the underpinnings to resonance. Like when, when you are in resonance with someone or something that is, you are harmonizing with them. And this is you like, call it love. you could yeah, call exactly. it love. Exactly. And this is like the mathematical underpinning of that. Okay. Exactly. I, have question, I have a question for you. When, so we talk a lot about actually visually connecting with the planets. So going out outside and seeing Saturn and seeing Mars. a very important thing to do to feel connected to the thingness of the universe to where we are right like a it's gps it. system exactly so when you were saying that cycles close to each other naturally in train it is is visually connecting with a planet actually helping you in train to the frequency of that planet thereby being more receptive or capable of receiving the transmission of that planet for example. I agree. Okay. Yeah. Was that a yes, no question? Was that a yes, no question? I mean, kind of, but <clears throat> then the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, you know, learning how to listen to music changes how you hear, you know, how, how you hear a song right. when you hear a chord and a chord progression that becomes recognizable. It just doesn't change the fact that if you know nothing about music and you hear a song you like, you know, you like it. You know, it's like wine. You give a wine to five people and a couple of people will think it's the best wine ever. And someone else, two other people will think this, this wine is awful. And so the same thing is true with resonance and vibration. <clears throat> and yet I must also point out that two people can meet and have a resonance. But if that resonance is all based upon the second, fourth, and even eighth harmonic, remember the second harmonic is oppositions. That's, you know, a half of a cycle. Mm -hmm. The fourth harmonic, a quarter of a cycle is squares. An eighth harmonic is a half a square and a square and a half, semi-square, sesquisquare. And in fact, we can even look at a half of a half of a square. These, this series of dividing a cycle in half and half again and half again and half again and half again ad infinitum, that these make um, angles of, of conflict mm -hmm. of um, and, and conflict on the surface sounds bad, but uh, as William Blake wrote in the marriage of heaven and hell without conflict, there is no progression, you know, that, 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 and he writes elsewhere in that same train of thoughts, he writes um, um, uh, true friendship is opposition. <clears throat> in other words, when you, when you have some sort of conflict, it's resonance, but it's uncomfortable resonance and a relationship built only on the second, fourth, eighth, the hard angle aspects is resonant, but you might end up hating each other overnight. And that's it. Unless there were some smoother resonances to make one feel the love that we feel. Mm. Okay. Bliss GPS has a question. I, I want to see if you have an answer to this. Is there harmonic and chakra alignment correspondence? Um, yes, I'm not. I, I'm not really. Um, uh, my friend David Pond has written a book about uh, astrology and, and the chakras. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, part of the thing with any form of yoga ultimately is to harmonize our chakras. You know, mm. when we have a chakra that is is out of balance, too loud, too quiet, um, unable to connect with the others, that creates a metaphysical um, dis-ease that typically can correspond or develop into a physical dis-ease. So yes, there certainly is a correspondence and there are many tools for aligning or realigning the smoother harmony between chakras um, starting with meditation, with yoga, with various forms of, you know, mind exercises, with music. I mean, music is a, an amazing way to, with sound healing. I, I mean, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Okay. <clears throat> so you said something else that was really, really interesting. I mean, you said a million things that were interesting, but you said nature conserves energy by entraining with larger cycles. Did I say that right? You did. Okay. So is, is that another reason why 
for us, tuning into the astrology can actually help us on many levels conserve our energy. So for example, right now we've been having a bunch of retrograde energy and I've been trying to move things forward. But if I was really in training with the, the larger cycle, I would realize this isn't really the right time to be moving things forward. I should conserve my energy right now. And just by tuning into the cosmic rhythm, I would be conserving my energy. So on a very simplistic level, um, what, you, what you're saying is, is, is very, very accurate. Um, but on a very simplistic level, uh, in days of yore, when there were no nuclear-powered submarines and there were no steam engines, basically the way a ship would get out of harbor would be by rowing till it got into open seas and then they would raise their sails. Now, a sea captain would go to an expert who knew about the tides. And remember, tides are just changing rhythms. And they, and they knew about the tides because if they were to launch their journey out of the harbor, just as the tide was coming in, the rowing power would have had to fight against that energy. And by the time they got to open sea, when their energy was really needed, they'd all be exhausted. Or in fact, they might not even be able to fight the tide in some places. And they'd be basically just uh, um, pushed by the currents back to shore. And the same is true whether we know about it or not. You know, trying to launch a major life effort when Saturn is moving through the first quadrant, the first, second, and third houses of our chart doesn't mean we can't be successful or have some cool things going on. But if we're looking at kind of setting a a 14-year, which is a half of the Saturn cycle path, you'd wait until Saturn got to the lowest point in the chart because that's the point at which the tide changes and that's why Saturn opposing the midheaven is often such a dark night of the soul and such a change that then for 14 years, you're riding that outward tide up to the top of the chart when you reach a culmination point. So what you're saying is absolutely true. And the reason to learn or study astrology, whether we're looking at the traditional physical aspects or incorporating the more magical and creative and soulful um, harmonic aspects in particular quintiles and septiles, but it's, it's, it's an infinite door uh, or an infinite realm, but, but incorporating those into our lives doesn't, it's not about predicting what will happen in the future. It's predicting about when those tides will change so that as we look back in our life and see how we've responded to those tides in past, we can better engineer a plan to make a use of actually going with the current when mm. the time is right and fighting the current when necessary. Mm. Okay. How are you going to be bringing some of these concepts to life and, and making them applicable to our charts and to our lives in the upcoming quintile septile class? Oh, that that actually is the easiest part, because once people, astrologers, astrology students, even beginners, once they look at a handful of charts of famous people and see these patterns in their chart, it's, you know, it would be like like going through your entire life as an astrologer, never having heard of Mars, you know, every chart you did, you did, but there was just no Mars in it because you didn't know that Mars existed. Your readings would probably be okay. You'd get by. You'd be missing a whole dimension. But when someone said, look at Mars and watch what this does, look at this person who has Mars in Capricorn and this person who has Mars in Gemini, and let's look how different. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's the amazing thing about the Uranus awakener lightning strike going on. The The, the course will be a... a, a I don't want to say it'll be a course in Uranus because Uranus is not what the course is about, but people who go through seeing how these aspects work in other people's charts and then looking at their own chart go, holy shit, I never, I never realized. And I've got, I mean, I've done charts of, I, I was going to say hundreds, but probably more like a hundred or so professional astrologers who I've known for decades and showing them aspects in their chart that they've never looked at they went 
I mean, again and again, I see the, oh my God, I've, I've been working with my chart for 30 years. I've never, this makes so much sense, you know? Oh and God. so that's what happens. So, so it's, it's, it's as easy. What's that saying? It's as easy as falling off a, a log, you know, a rolling log in, in the water, whatever that saying is. Um, it's, that's the easy part. Um, the hard part is getting people to be in a position to open their minds, to re make them realize that the world we live in today is not the same world that our ancestors lived in, in Greece in 2000 years ago, not to take anything away from those technologies and those things. It's so important. And so magical is what's happened over the past 30, 40 years of the recovery of that information and how many people are interested in it. But at that time, people were concerned with their physical life of how are they going to get food? How are they going to get water? How are they going to live? How are they going to die? What's going to happen to them? There was so much of a different sense. I mean, um, Marshall McLuhan said that we used to, um, you know, live in a jungle and had to gather food. Now we live in an information jungle and we gather information. Mm. Now, it's a very intriguing shift because food is physical and information is meta physical. Mm -hmm. And this is part of a much larger shift that I'm writing about in my um, upcoming book, Quantum Astrology, um, about the shift that humanity has been through, where the physical universe used to be all there was, except for mystics who have always known this stuff. I mean, you can trace the invisibility, the invisible metaphysical for part of the universe all the way back, you know, to Lao Tzu, you know, writing about the way. What is it? Well, it's not a path. You can't take it. It's not a practice. You can't do this ritual four times a day and get there. It's a metaphysical concept. So mystics have known about this through every religion and every culture. But now in modern times, we've all been forced in some way to become mystics because we're all moving around in metaphysical universes. Meta. I, I hate the fact that that, um, you know, Gary Zuckerberg has taken my favorite word and made it the name or half of it, the name of his um, company. I love that you you've said Gary Zuckerberg on two different podcast episodes, and it's perfect because his, his name's Mark Zuckerberg. Is it really? Who's Gary? Who's Gary? I don't know, but you, I love that you, Gary. whenever you're. Uh, now I got to Google Gary, Gary, there's a Gary something in there. <laughs> whenever I, you're unhappy about this meta thing, you always. That's funny. Well, it's, it's, it's because it's because I, I hate what he's done to the word enough that I won't say his name. It's like not saying God's name out loud. I don't know. I don't. Um, regardless, from now on, I'm just going to call him Zuckerberg. Um, but 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 the point is that that for over whew, for 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 nearly fifty years, when when I've been asked why are you interested in astrology, my answer has really been the same, and my answer is because I'm intrigued and curious as to how meta becomes physical. Mm. That's been my, that's, that was my stock answer. I mean, in, 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 in the uh, early 1970s, how does meta become physical and it becomes physical through some act of vibration that's based upon sacred geometry, the shape of things, which is a planetary configuration um, and, uh, you know, and there is a magic to this, what we might call crystallization of, of, of non-physical form into physical form. It's important enough that it's the opening words uh, in the beginning, there was the word and, you know, and, and, and the word actually is a translation, trans translation from in the beginning, there was logos and logos is not just a word that's stated logically. Logos is a magical concept that says the vibration matches what was ready to become physical, but was not yet physical. When something is logical, you know, even, I mean, the word logos in Christianity, it's an important word because logos is that truth that is spoken. And once it's spoken, it sets things into motion. In the beginning, there was the word. And so even that 
is giving physical form to the vibration of what previously existed only as a thought. All right. So does that mean the word astrology, which is astro logos? Absolutely. Does it real does it mean then literally star truth spoken and becoming physical? I like it. Yeah. It actually wow. it does. It does wow. it does. Okay. Okay. Another question, and I think this probably could be another cosmic connection. But I just recently saw a post. Oh, first of all, I wanted to to say the uh, foundations three waitlist that the, the uh, URL, in case you're listening to the podcast and didn't see it on the screen, it's astrologyhub.com slash foundations, the number three, and then waitlist. And that's how you get on the waitlist to know when enrollment is open for the harmonics class that Rick is going to be teaching for us in February. Okay. I recently saw an astrologer post online on Facebook or something that you actually can't see the soul in the astrology chart, that there is no way to see the soul in the astrology chart. And the astrology chart isn't even a map of the soul. And so I sent it to a few astrologers, Natasha and Gemini Brett, I should have sent it to you and said, do you agree or disagree with this? And I think it's fascinating because from what I'm hearing from you, it might be arguable that the way that astrology has been practiced for the last 2000 years, maybe doesn't touch the soul as much. But this element of astrology that you're you're advocating for all of us to bring into our practice is touching the realm of the soul. Is that correct, true or untrue? What are your thoughts about that? It's true. And in fact, um, I, I 25 years ago, one of the lectures I gave at one of the national conferences was finding soul in the birth chart. I mean, it's... And and in in the course we actually have a whole piece on that as to really I mean what is what is soul I mean according to William Blake soul is merely that portion of our body that we can't perceive with our five senses hmm. <laughs> that's his I mean a wonderful statement about in fact it, this is such a good line I think I could go right there and my this is my family bible this book has been beat up for like. You know, I've had this book for. Geez. What's it called, Rick? For people who would love to read your the family. portable Blake. It's basically and um, it's basically um, the selected writings of William Blake. I have I probably have twenty fifteen twenty books back there on my bookshelf on Blake. But this is the book. I mean, pages falling out. I mean, you know, but um, but basically, here's 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 the quote: Man has no body. No body distinct from his soul. Man has no body distinct from his soul. For that called body is merely a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, which are the chief inlets of soul in this age. And I love that line, in this age. Yeah. Meaning that we're coming from a period of time where, where we, if we couldn't perceive it physically with our five senses, you know, then it didn't exist. And we live in a world now where we know that the five senses are just the tip of the iceberg. Hmm. I mean, we don't necessarily, people have different senses and thoughts about what is beyond that, but we know there are all kinds of extra sensory perceptions. If you talk about the senses only being the five, five senses. And so this is Blake basically saying, that body is is the soul that we can perceive with our five senses in this age, meaning that this will change, that we'll be able to perceive other parts of it at other, at other times. Mm, okay. Brilliant, this been, brilliant line. This has been so much fun. It, it's re reminded me of being in college and one of those amazing professors that you just love and everybody lines up to listen to the professor speak. That's how this has felt. Rick, thank you so much. So, so before before we bring it to a close, let's understand that the that that another thing that music and math have in common is that they're both universal languages. It doesn't matter what language we speak. Mm. Um, if you play music, um, it, it, regardless of your cultural you know orientation, it's going to it, you're going to be able to you know feel it, perceive it, move to it. 
And mathematics the same. Mathematics transcends all language. And so as we step into this harmonic realm um, and, and, and move, and again, this is not meant to replace Ptolemaic astrology, Hellenistic astrology, any techniques that you're already using. It's just to point out that there's a Mars out there that you don't know exists. And once you know that it exists and begin to use it, it can change how you see things because you can see things that were previously invisible, just as the soul is to the patriarchy invisible. It's a, this is a part of the refeminization of astrology. There's no question about it at all. I mean, this, you know, this is the idea of bringing soul back into it because it used to be that no one, that an astrologer wouldn't give a crap about what was going on for you internally or emotionally or spiritually. They just wanted to tell you this is, this will happen. Then you'll get divorced here. You'll get sick here. You'll get better here. And we now know, I mean, even going to Jung's autobiography, you know, which was a book, his autobiography was a book called memory, memories, dreams, and reflections. Cause he said, I could tell you about all the objective things in my life, but it would be unimportant. Let me tell you what's important. Let me tell you about my dreams. You know, that's a real autobiography. And this is part of astrology's step away from the patriarchy and reclaiming a more holistic view, including those things that the patriarchy didn't even know existed or at least tried to make not exist. That is the world of, you know, water and earth, the the feminine, you know, the feeling, the feeling realm. Mm. I have so many more questions that I could ask you, but I'm, I'm flagging them in my mind for future episodes. So yes, more to come. Rick, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. If you're interested in joining astrology foundations level three, where we will be going even deeper into these harmonic aspects, uh, the quintiles, the septiles, what other, what other tiles? Is that it? Well, we'll be looking at the, um, at the quintiles, septiles, octiles, and noviles. We'll also take a little bit of a look into the turnstiles, kitchen tiles, infantiles, and reptiles, but those are for more advanced students. (laughs) Those are bonuses, yeah? (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, You can join the wait list right now. The class is happening in February, so just make sure. And and by the way, people should know that although if you've taken foundations level one and two, that's great. We've already touched on some of these things a little bit there. Uh, but if you know the planet signs and houses, I mean, if you're, you know, a, a solid beginner or an intermediate or even advanced professional, I, I mean, you'll gain out of this. You don't have to have the prerequisites of, of one and two in order to take this particular course. Perfect. You can get on the waitlist now, astrologyhub.com slash foundations, the number three waitlist. We are going to be opening up enrollment in a couple weeks. So the waitlist will be the first to know and the first that are able to join the class. Can't wait to see you all there. And thank you, everybody who is here live. It's been so fun to see the comments in the chat. If you have not yet subscribed to our channel, go ahead and hit the subscribe button and also the notification bell so that you know when we are on live and you can catch these live Cosmic Connections and the other live shows that we do on the channel. Rick, amazing. I mean, Yay. oh God, I great love to see it. you. Great to talk with you. You too. These are just the most fun. I love when you get on a roll on these topics and it's so great that we get to, we get to share here your real passion in astrology, which is what you said. How did, how did meta become physical? How does something occur out of nothing? You look at your life, you look around your room and you see you know, your, your home and you see your kids and, and, and the gifts that you've gotten from and the people and the things that you've bought and just, I mean, your experiences and all of that manifested in a constellation around Amanda from nothing. Right. That's the magic. It's fascinating. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. And the fact that we can explore that through astrology is like, it's the, it's the coolest. Rick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, everybody. My pleasure. For thank you. And thank you for making astrology a part of your life, everyone. We'll catch you on the next episode. Take care. This podcast is presented by Astrology Hub. You can learn more and find all of our shows at astrologyhub.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, 
review, and hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you can stay up to date on the latest episodes and help more people find the wisdom of astrology. Thank you for taking the time to do this now. Thank you for being a part of our community and for making astrology a part of your life.